Tonight on Farage, will £10 billion plug the hole and stop a looming health crisis? We'll also look at the advice on vaccines and to world media that came overnight, aren't we lucky, from Prince Harry. And on Talking Pints, I'll be joined by former Tory MP Jerry Hayes, who is a Remainer. That should be fun. Well, for the last few weeks, we've been talking here about this horrendous backlog that exists within the NHS and the fact that it simply isn't going to be reduced any time soon. And overnight, we get a report uh, coming from the NHS Confederation demanding an extra £10 billion pretty much immediately. This is on top of a further injection of £6 billion that was put into the NHS earlier this year. And the argument is that unless this money gets put in, nothing can be done to reduce the waiting list. And just to give you some idea of the gravity of what we're facing. Last month, Health Secretary Sajid Javid told The Telegraph, and this is on taking up the appointment, what shocked me most is when I was told that the waiting list is going to get a lot worse before it gets better. It's gone up from 3.5 million to 5.3 million as of today. It's more than that now. And I said to the officials, so what do you mean? A lot worse thinking maybe it goes up from 5.3 to 6 million, maybe 7 million. They said, no, it's going to go up by millions. It could even go up as high as 13 million. Hearing that figure of 13 million, it has absolutely totally focused my mind and it's going to be my top priority to deal with because we can't have that. So that is what Sajid Javid said shortly after taking the job. Clearly, he's horrified by that prospect. I think we're all horrified by that prospect. I don't think there's any of us that don't know somebody who is waiting for an operation, waiting for a diagnosis. Uh, we do have a massive looming health crisis. Ten billion demanded overnight by NHS providers and the NHS Confederation. But is that enough to do the job? Or is this about more than just pumping in money? Well, I'm absolutely sure uh, that whichever way we cut this, we're going to need a lot more money. After all, we have a rapidly expanding population. But with a shortage of doctors and with the private sector able to help, but not enough to really lift the burden, we've got to start looking for solutions, for answers very, very quickly. Well, joining me now to discuss this 10 billion and what difference it might make is Dr. Ken Aswani, GP, former medical director for the seven primary care trusts covering North East London. Ken, good evening. Good evening. And thank you for joining us here on GB News. So £10 billion has been demanded overnight. Uh, now, I'm not suggesting they're saying that £10 billion will solve everything, but they are saying, the NHS Confederation is saying, that unless they get this £10 billion, we can't even begin to deal with the waiting lists. How bad do you think this problem is? Well, clearly it is a very significant and a very severe problem. And, and it's important to understand, um, and it's not news that obviously we've, we've had the COVID crisis, so the NHS had to prioritise urgent care 
um, and it's it's slowly beginning to recover. And, and and although we're tackling the waiting list, obviously demand has gone up. Um, but in terms of what we need to tackle it, I think it's a multi-pronged approach. So one element of it is money, but there's already a lot of money invested in the NHS. The big issue is going to be capacity, enough operating theatres, enough, cons enough consultants, enough doctors, and sort of so on. So money itself is not the answer. But the big thing that's changed is the way we work. So what we've got is that elective centres that, for example, just do hip and knee operations, and the yeah. productivity is rocketed up. So those patients that are waiting, say, over a year, went down by a third in March. So a lot of those sort of efforts will make a big difference in terms of sort of getting through the waiting list. But the other priority is there's a lot of urgent work needing to doing. So that has to be prioritised as well. So I agree, it's not something we can tackle overnight. But there's a huge effort being made into the, in, in the NHS to really, really tackle this area because we know what it means to patients. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, money clearly of itself isn't enough. But I'm very struck, Ken, by one thing, that, you know, as the lockdown started at the end of March last year and, and, and we were very worried, everybody was scared about what might happen, we saw one or two quite dramatic things happen. The first was the opening up of the Nightingale Hospitals, which in short order, now, I don't know, in terms of medical equipment, what they had, but they certainly had bed capacity. That we managed to do. Then there was a big shout-out for retired doctors, nurses and surgeons to come back to the NHS colours. And from what I could understand, huge numbers of people said that they wanted to help. Then we heard, actually, the whole process of retired doctors coming back into the system was so mired in red tape that very few actually made it. And then we saw the Nightingale Hospitals, which had been built in short order, which impressed us all, basically uh, being mothballed or being closed completely. And I want to ask you, that thinking that we had back last April 2020, is there anything to be said, given the sheer size of this backlog? Is there anything to be said for trying to cajole former doctors, former nurses, former surgeons, back into active service? Well, I totally agree that everything we can do to increase and attract the workforce, particularly the experienced workforce, yeah. is going to be a good thing. So whether it's doctors, nurses, other professionals, then we should encourage that because that's definitely going to help. Um, I think in terms of the sites but, but, we but, use, but, but a Ken, lot of hospitals... Just, just my quick question on that. I mean, you agree with me that it sounds like a very good idea. I did speak to people who'd volunteered to go back last year who just said, forget it. You know, they want us to fill in forms and, and, and the whole thing's impossible. But if, we, if you and I agree that it's a good idea to get people back, why is it not being done? So, so we did learn a lot from that. And, and I think that, um, I mean, admittedly, there was quite a bit of bureaucracy in terms yeah. of, you know, as you say, filling in 10 forms and so on. But I think we've learned from that. And, and I think that we can definitely streamline the process. So there's no reason we can't get over the bureaucracy, but certainly we don't want to be tracked. So anyone who essentially wants to work, we should attract them back in and, and, and fit them in. And, and I'm sure they could make a significant contribution, as well as all the other mechanisms that we use, upskilling and so on, that will also make a difference. Yeah. OK. And what about the Nightingales? As I say, you know, these, these hospitals uh, were able to provide many thousands of beds. Could they be useful 
whether it's for minor operations or post-operative care, could they play a useful role in us trying in some way to get down this, I think it's five and a half million now, backlog yeah. in operations? I, I think it's worth thinking along those ways, but, but, but the critical thing with the Nightingale, it actually competes for the same staff. Um, so what we found and from our local experience is that we've got elective centres or, if you like, extensions or increasing operating theatres within existing hospitals. They can provide the capacity. We're just going to make sure that the rest of the infrastructure supports that. The other thing is, is something like the Nightingale may risk actually centralising everything. And, you know, a lot of people will want their operation done locally. So that can work in, in that way. But there's no reason in terms of where we can scale up that capacity, maybe different centres. So now what we have is orthopaedic centres or eye centres, yeah. which can do thousands of operations. And, and that probably is the right approach to sort of take because, you know, yes, it's industrializing it, but the expertise is concentrating. And I can definitely see that happening rather than one big bang. You know, maybe you'd have, you know, sort of four or five around, say, an area like London and, and, and across the country, maybe regionally will make a difference. So you think we can make a difference to this backlog of operations and not head towards this horrifying potential figure of 13 million? I think we can definitely make the difference. I think it does test the health service and, and, and what it can do. But I think, you know, the health service has always, you know, risen to the challenge. What we've got to look after is the patients who are very urgent. I mean, cancer, unmet need and sort of so on. So there is a bit of catching up. And to be honest, I think we do have to be realistic that, OK, it's not done overnight. It's not done in one year. But actually, I think we can make a huge amount of progress. Um, and then I think if we see the numbers heading in the right direction, then we've actually made a difference. I mean, we're fortunate we have these sort of NHS. But I think if we work that differently, I, I, I'm optimistic and I think we have to be. Thank you very much indeed, Dr. Ken Oswani, for joining us here on GB News. And that was the most optimistic message I've heard about the NHS. And let's hope that he is right. So I'm asking you today, is 10 billion enough? To stop a looming health crisis, let me know what you think, please. GBviews at gbnews.uk. And I will, of course, read out as many of your thoughts as I possibly can. Also, don't forget, at the end of the show, we do Barrage the Farage, where you send in questions which I try to answer, having not had any side of them before. Now, overnight, once again, we have been privileged. Harry and Meghan said, after some recent events that they were left speechless. And I did express on this show the hope that they actually meant it. But unfortunately, that was not the case. And Prince Harry was live, beamed in from the West Coast to a GQ award ceremony in London last night. An award was going to the Oxford AstraZeneca team. And I wonder whether Prince Harry is trying to become Professor Harry, because it seems he is now a world-leading authority, not just on how media should be managed or what we should all think, but indeed on vaccines themselves. Until every community can access the vaccine and until every community is connected to trustworthy information about the vaccine, then we are all at risk. But there is a huge disparity between who can and cannot access the vaccine. Less than 2% of people in the developing world have received a single dose at this point. 
and many of the healthcare workers are still not vaccinated. We cannot move forward together unless we address this imbalance as one. At the same time, families around the world are being overwhelmed by mass-scale misinformation across news media and social media, where those who peddle in lies and fear are creating vaccine hesitancy, which in turn is dividing communities and eroding trust. This is a system we need to break if we are to overcome COVID-19 and the risk of new variants. This is a system we need to break, according to Professor Prince Harry. Presumably, I don't know, I presume what he means is uh, that somehow we have to control what is said in mainstream media and social media because some of it does not accord with the world that Harry thinks it should be. I find the whole thing astonishing. I wonder why he can't just shut up. But there we are. So let's go to somebody who knows a bit more about Prince Harry than I do. And I'm very pleased to say that joining me now is Angela Levin, journalist and biographer, including Harry Conversations with the Prince. Angela, good evening. Welcome once again Hello. to BB News. Thank you for inviting me on. Why can't he just shut up, Angela? Why does he have to keep giving us his thoughts on the world? Well, both he and Meghan are desperate, desperate to be on the front pages. And the less interest we take in them, the more desperate they get. They, they divide themselves into two. One day, they're both terrible victims and they've been hurt and wounded because people don't help them enough because they can't do things with themselves. The next day, they are gurus and they have a world stage and they want to tell us all about everything. Now, he's not a scientist. He doesn't, he's not an expert in any of these things. But, I mean, I think he's just pushed to talk this gobbledygook. I mean, he did mention that he, he dislikes, as we just heard, the news media and the social media, and they're peddling yeah. fears and lies. Well, he and Meghan peddled a few lies um, when they were talking to Oprah Winfrey. So, you know, including the the date that he got married on, which he said was three year, three days earlier than it was. You know, that's nonsense. But what he, he then quoted The Guardian. He took quite a long quote from The Guardian. So they're media, aren't they? They're this, um, but it's left wing, and he likes that, of course. Yes. And he also, he also didn't mention the very brave journalists who are out in Afghanistan risking their lives to save people. So he's got a very sort of narrow knowledge. And it's all full. I've heard, because I follow him quite closely, I hear the same bits of sentence um, moved from one situation to another situation. And none of it, when he's telling us how to behave, does behave to him. We know that very clearly with climate change. We must not fly. And he takes a huge uh, private jet and flies off um, for seven hours or something like that to, to play polo. Um, I think there's this very strange vision that they are excluded from everything, but we must listen because they have this world platform yeah. and they want to rule the world. Well, it's for the moment, they still do have that platform, don't they? I mean, even though there isn't that much interest here in buying their books or anything like that, but they do make media and I'm talking about them. Um, but I, let me ask you something. You know, you were studying Prince Harry long before he met Meghan Markle. Was this sort of change of personality from the Jack the Lad 
army boy, party goer, um, and, and sort of all round jolly fellow. At least that's how I saw him, and I think that's how the country saw him. I think at one point, I mean, he was almost the most popular royal they'd ever been because he appealed to all sorts of different generations. Was this change in personality happening before he met Meghan Markle, or did it come afterwards? No, definitely afterwards. He did actually move away from being the party boy, and he wanted to make a difference, he said to me. He wanted to support the Queen, he wanted to support Prince William, he wanted to be there, and he wanted to make his mark. And he said he might go to Africa and make his mark there, looking after um, animals that um, you know, are no longer or could be extinct very soon. But when once he met Meghan, I think he was, became terrified of upsetting her. She was the one for him. It was an instant sort of blow of passion. And he has to do what she says in his own mind. His language now is Megan speak. And he was charismatic. Yeah. He was very quick thinking. He could make a speech and make you roar with laughter and cry. Uh, he was brilliant with people who'd been damaged psychologically and physically. And he could talk to them for two minutes. And then I went and talked to them afterwards. And they said, He's changed my life. And I sort of think, hello, two minutes. And he said, he's given me a reason to live. He's empowered me to make something of myself. And it's a great gift, that. And I wouldn't take that away from him. But now we just have his inner, he's in like in a cage, a social yeah. cage and a verbal cage. It, it's he very has odd. to only words. And some of those videos, Angela, some of those videos they do when they're sat together, I mean, he does look a bit like a hostage, doesn't he, really? I mean, I'm not sure whether he really believes some of this stuff. Angela, I have to ask you, I mean, obviously you can't tell me exactly what they're going to do next, but is your guess they're just going to go on doing this? Yes, on and on, and we've seen that because he's got another book, a memoir, which I've been told is going to be about Diana. She died when he was only 12, and, and the people who he blames. So this blame and this angriness is going to go on and on because wow. some people, and I think Megan is one, that gets a stimulation from having a fight. She wants to win, but she gets the adrenaline well, running. Well, one fight that she picked was, of course, with the former Good Morning Britain presenter, Piers Morgan, um, and she complained when he said he didn't believe a word that she'd said uh, in that interview. And indeed, uh, as we dissect her comments, we find that Piers was pretty much right. But she complained to Ofcom. About 55,000 people complained to Ofcom. And yesterday we got the judgment, which came out in Piers Morgan's favour. And Ofcom said attempts to silence Piers Morgan would represent a chilling restriction on freedom of expression. Hooray! I mean, here is a regulator getting something absolutely right, standing up for free speech, open opinion. I mean, will this not be a setback for Harry and Meghan? It'll be a setback, but I'm quite sure she will try every which way of coming back and complaining and, and not taking it up. We, we heard today there was some rumour that um, it was breaking her freedom of speech and all that as well. So I think that she will fight very hard. We've seen the battle she's had over her father. You know, she will not talk to him yep. under any circumstances, even when he's tried publicly and privately to apologise. Um, she, she needs to win. She really mm, well, needs to win, and that's what's well, quite scary. 
They're going to go on fighting, clearly. Angela, thank you very much indeed for joining me here on GB News. That was Angela Levin predicting that they're going to go on and on and on. Save us, please. In a moment, we'll talk about the HGV driver shortage. Is it all just the fault of Brexit? An immediate £10 billion is demanded for the NHS to try and help cut the backlog, otherwise it could get out of control. And I'm asking you, is that enough to stop the looming health crisis? And some of your opinions coming back. Trevor on GB Views says £10 billion will unfortunately just pay for more managers, pen pushers and diversity departments. Gosh, he's cynical. That doesn't mean he's wrong, though, does it? Lindsay says, my husband has been waiting for seven years for a hip and two knees. NHS just use excuses. Too young, no budget, and now COVID. They are a disgrace. Well, I know some people feel that, but let's just remember there are lots of people within the NHS doing their damnedest, trying their absolute hardest. Sandra sent this in to GB Views. Why have I contributed all my working life to a healthcare system that want me to protect... Well, yes, we're told we must protect the NHS. This is a very, very important point. The NHS should be there to protect us. And people like that, who've paid in money, Lindsay, who've paid in money for decades, are now being told their job is to protect the NHS. And I have to say, maybe for the first few weeks of the pandemic, that argument held water. It doesn't anymore. Gary says, so, they need 10... No, not million, billion. They need 10 billion to sort out the NHS. I wonder where that's coming from. Well... The wonderful printing machine, I suppose, and we've been pretty good at using that over the last 10 to 15 years. Now, the lorry driver situation, the HDV shortage, and this is something that has been very big in our news over the course of the last few weeks, and overnight we've heard of some quite big pay incentives being given to HGV drivers, uh, up to 40% pay increases to get people back into lorry driving. So what is at the root of this problem? And that's what I want to debate and investigate over the course of the next few minutes. And joining me now is Ian Baxter, chairman of Baxter Freight, one of the UK's fastest growing logistics businesses. Ian, thank you for joining us here on GB News. Good evening. And you've got 100 staff working for you, I understand. Uh, there is a crisis. There is a shortage of drivers. Uh, what do we put it down to? And how do we solve it? Well, it's been brewing for many years, actually. There's been a shortage of drivers for a number of years. Um, I think there's been underinvestment in training people up to do that work. It's not been something that people have been attracted to, I think, um, and they've been underpaid. So what we've been doing is we've been sucking in foreign workers. Yeah. And, um, of course, Brexit has meant that some of those have gone back or they don't want to stay in the UK or, you know, the pandemic as well has uh, been a factor as well, because obviously that's also made um, absenteeism grow. That's made the job more problematic. Brexit also means that um, you it takes longer to do the, the job of European transport, which is my sector, really, because it's you know probably taking an extra day to get round. So you need more trucks to do the work as well. So, you know, You've got multiple factors. You've got history, you've got recruitment, you've got undervaluing the job, the fact that it's complicated, the fact that, um, 
you know, services aren't great in the UK. There's not the respect for drivers that they need to have as well, I would say. Um, but Brexit is an important part of it as well. It means that we need more drivers. We need more than ever. Also home deliveries as well. You know, because of home deliveries, we need more drivers than ever. And um, people aren't joining the industry. The average age of a driver is about 55, same age as me. But, you know, that's an appalling indictment, actually, on the industry in terms of bringing yeah. in young people. So, so those thought, are the Ian. challenges. They're, they're multifaceted. A quick thought on European workers. You know, when the referendum was taking place back in 16, we were told there were 3 million EU nationals living in the UK. When it came to them registering, 6 million registered. So there's not exactly a shortage of EU nationals who've come to the UK to work. Indeed, millions more than we thought. Um, but I do accept that in the driver sector, you know, some maybe 10, 20,000 have gone back. But what interests me about this, I mean, as you say, it's been an unglamorous job, not attracting young people, not paying actually particularly well for the unsociable hours and huge cost of family life as well for HGV drivers. You know, because I noticed there was a 50,000 shortage back in 2015, you know, even before the referendum took place. But the other thing is, Ian, I've been told that as a result of COVID, there were 25,000 HGV tests that just weren't taken last year. Is there any evidence? Yeah. Is there any evidence that we're catching up with that or not? No, and it's a really good point that I should have mentioned. Actually, testing is behind. It isn't catching up. And, you know, the government needs to do more here. They have some of it in their hands, don't they? They, they have the opportunity to speed up that testing, to invest in acceleration of that. And also, I think, you know, it costs thousands of pounds to train to be a driver. And some of that is fees paid to the government. So if the government wants more drivers, they could scrap those fees. They could waive them for 12 months, 24 months, and so on. So there are things that they could do there, but um, I'm sure you'd agree as well, Nigel, that uh, immigration has its role to play. And you've seen that uh, Lord Wolfson of Next, for example, has called the government's uh, immigration policy in this area insane over the last few days because he said, you know, it's actually not working for the country. It's not working for the economy. We need more drivers. And one option that we have is to bring more in under the um, uh, important worker scheme, whatever that's called. Well, uh, and well, fine, but, I, but, but also, and but also, the gap because because training. Can't we, tra can't we train more? Or, can't we tra yeah. now that now that Not money's going up? Night, that's the thing. Now that money's going up, perhaps it's becoming a bit more attractive, and I wonder whether we can yeah. train more. See, the problem I've got with bringing in more foreign workers rather than training some of our own is this isn't necessarily going to solve the problem because what's really interesting to me is that Poland has got a massive shortage of drivers. Now, that may not be wholly surprising. Germany are between 50 and 60,000 drivers short, so not too far behind us. And even France are short of 40,000 drivers. So I do understand the point that with Brexit and the way they're behaving in some of the continental ports, it is taking longer. I do understand that point, and I hope we can solve that and get through that, because it makes sense for both sides. But it isn't just about workers and Brexit, because we've got these labour shortages across much of the continent, too. Uh, there's truth in that. There's definitely truth. You know, demand has risen for, for transportation services yeah. over yeah. the last um, 
12 months really but you know particularly you know over the last 10 years 20 years whichever period you want to take but you know there has been a surge and supply chains are are you know in difficulty across europe so it is not just the uk um yeah. the pandemic has made things more complicated absolutely but um you know, Brexit is a part. It's, it's contributing in the in the UK. It's making things a, a bit worse from that point of view. But you have to look at the history. You have to look at training. You have to look at having. I mean, we 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 realised during the pandemic, didn't we, that key workers were some of the most undervalued people in our society. Oh, yeah. You know. Um, <laughs> Lorry drivers have kept uh, our shop stock. They've kept industry moving through the pandemic, and they have been underpaid in doing so and undervalued yeah. in doing so. But the starting point is to value those guys more, to treat them better, to make the industry an exciting place for people to come to work. But yes, in the short term, I would also want to open our doors to some foreign right. workers who want to come temporary basis to help us out because otherwise Christmas might get cancelled and that's yeah. what I'm worried about. But if they come from Europe to help us, that'll mean that France and Germany and Poland will be even deeper in the mire. Just finally, quickly, well, Ian, are, are there good yeah. jobs going at Baxter Freight right at this moment for HGV drivers? Well, we don't have them for HGV drivers ourselves, but we are growing. You'll be pleased to know that we are growing as we come out of the pandemic. We are growing, we're coping with Brexit and we're developing our business and we are recruiting at the moment. We are, we've gone from 80 to 100 staff over the last few weeks, actually. Yeah. And um, the future looks good from where we are sitting. But it's hard, it's complicated, it's never been as tough as it is at the moment, but there are opportunities too. Okay, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Well, as you can see from the HGV debate, there are lots and lots of factors and wherever you particularly want to point your finger, the fact that there are driver shortages in France and Germany and right across Europe tells me something, but you must make your own minds up, of course. Now, my what the Farage moment, that moment of the day when I just want to hold my head in the hands and say, no, it can't be happening. Well, this time it is Goldsmiths University down there in South London. And Goldsmiths anti-racist action group of students have decided that it's wholly unacceptable that at Deptford Town Hall, which is now owned by Goldsmiths, there are statues uh, of people they find utterly repellent. Among them are Sir Francis Drake and Sir Horatio Nelson. Nelson, when all the polls are done of who is the favourite Briton in all of history, generally it's Churchill first and it's Nelson second. But they are demanding that Nelson's statue is removed. And I worry here that the warden of Goldsmiths, Professor Francis Corner, may be bending ever so slightly to these students by saying these students were carved in 1905 to reflect the wishes of local community. Over a century later, any decision must reflect the wishes of our local community now. Well, that's all well and good, as long as the local community isn't a tiny activist extremist group of students who, of course, are Marxists. And what Marxists want to do is to destroy everything, to destroy our confidence in our country, in its standing, in its past, to pave way for the glorious communist revolution. And if anything, if anything, uh, these statues that are in public spaces 
such as the one we saw in Bristol last year, should only be removed if there's actually been a local referendum of people and they approve of it. We must not be ruled by the mob on this or any other issue. And my other What the Farage moment, I was amazed. So Matt Hancock is away on holiday again. Yep, he's off uh, with Gina Codalangio. They're in the Swiss Alps. Uh, the Daily Express found some photographs of them. And I was really surprised to find that they've sort of gone down a little bit in the world because they're staying at a two-star lodge where rooms cost as little as £87 a night. Yes, a night, not per hour, a night. And apparently, though, Matt Hancock is using this because he's in training for the London Marathon and he's there for some last-minute high-altitude training. So there you are. In a moment, I will be joined by Jerry Hayes, former Conservative MP, Remainer, barrister and all-round colourful personality. Well, I'm joined on Talking Pints by Jerry Hayes. I'm not sure that Jerry and I agree on very much, but no. But hey, it's lovely to have and you here. And it's nice to have a decent gin and tonic. <laughs> this is not water. This is not water, I can promise you. But there's no ice. Jerry, you've been a pretty high profile barrister. You've taken some pretty full on, yeah. uh, serious cases. Yeah. I mean, involving the worst yeah. crimes that, that, that humanity can yeah. commit. When you take on a brief for somebody, do you, do you ever get to the point of thinking, I shouldn't really be doing this? No. No? Of course not. I mean, the ones we all hate, but you have to do it, yeah. is child sex. Yeah. You have to do it. Because every monster, every person who's guilty, as long as you don't say they're guilty to you, has a right to be tried. Yes. And due process. Yes. And fairly. But what I meant is, have you represented people where you thought, actually, this guy's not telling the truth? <laughs> I mean, it must be. No, really? <laughs> oh, well, it must, but must be but a moral, there must be a moral dilemma. Uh, there is no, there's no moral dilemma. No. Because my, my job is not to mislead the court. Yeah. My job is not to make up defences. If someone says, look, I'm guilty, I say, well, mate, you've got to be guilty or yeah. you go somewhere else. Right. Simple and as straightforward as that. A lot of the public don't get that, but yeah. that's the way yeah. it is. So no moral dilemma no. at all. OK. No. And... Very often, not that many morals in politics at all. And you decided, oh. to, you decided to run for politics, and you, you, got, a, you got elected in Harlow, <laughs> which had been a Labour... Yeah, it was a Labour stronghold. Sort of a, almost, could I call it a new town? It was a new town, Pretty much built in town. about 1958, yeah. and I did it in 1983. And, of course, I joined the Young Conservatives, one reason only. Sex, like everyone else joined the Young <laughs> Conservatives. And then I got interested <laughs> in it. And they were desperate for someone to represent Harlow, which could not possibly... And it was a no-hoper seat. It was a no-hoper seat. And I said, no. I wasn't even on the candidate. I said, for God's sake, we can't get anyone. So I said, oh, all right, I'll do it. And then suddenly, at the age of 29, I found myself with a, a 3,000 majority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, of course, buying your own council houses, which was very, very, very important indeed. Mm. Right to buy. Mm. Really made a difference and made people empowered. We were the first Red Wall. Harlow, Basildon, places like that. And, in fact, a lot of the Red Walls you see now, like Dewsbury, they, they, they were Tory seats yes, in the, the 80s. I remember Newcastle South, I think. Yeah, 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 that's right. That's right. Darlington as well. Yeah. Places, yeah. places so, like that. We have that. seen these things. There's nothing before. new in any of it. But and you were, there, you were there from 83 until 97. 97, So, yeah. I mean, a fairly long run. A lot, 14 years. And you saw Mrs Thatcher yeah. in her 
absolute prime. Yeah, we didn't always agree. I, I mean, I reduced, I reduced the majority of 104 to four. On the, You probably don't remember it, but it was all about teeth and eyes. Uh, Thatcher had this idea to save £30 million, which is really the Foreign Office lunch bill, to stop the free sight test. People were going to go blind. Pensioners went blind. And to stop the free dental checkup. Uh, and I, you know, I was on actually the uh, Museum of Moving Art. I was on every single TV channel simultaneously mm. on, on, on one evening. It was a big issue. We, we, no, we I lost. Do, I do remember yeah. you were quite a persistent sort of thorn. Yeah. You were more sympathetic over John Major, politically. Oh, yeah, absolutely right. And David Cameron used to be a researcher to us all. Yes. So I've been very much, I'm, I'm sort of centre, centre right. I mean, but where am I now? Under well, Boris well, Johnson. Well, I mean, you and I may disagree. <coughs> However, you believe what you say, Boris is a self-made man who worships his own creator. So we had last night, we had Christopher Biggins in. Oh, and, good man, Biggins. And, and he's been a conservative yeah. all his life. Yeah. And he was pretty disobliging about Boris. Yes. On the basis that he doesn't think Boris is really being particularly conservative or giving leadership. What is Boris Johnson? Boris Johnson is friendless. Boris Johnson... I think you'll hate about him most of all. Never buys a round. Good. Uh, I know. I mean, that's what quite rotter. <laughs> Yeah, water, water. But he doesn't really believe in anything. When you called him once, or recently, actually, you mm. said he was a copper-bottomed, double-dealing, hypocritical little so-and-so. Do you stand by that? That was my charm offensive. Ah, right. I think I was being very kind, actually. <laughs> but you speak to backbenchers, to backbenchers as well as I do, and you know what they're thinking. You read Conservative Home as well as I do. You know what the grassroots are thinking. You think, what have we done? We thought we could have this great saviour who got us a, who got us yeah. a majority, yeah, yeah. but he's not competent. And worse, he actually appoints people who are not competent. Look around that cabinet. It's deliberate, isn't it? Of course it is. It's deliberate. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he's... And isn't it funny? It, he, it was as if he was happy for Hancock to take all the stick for, you know, the care home yeah, disaster. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's now quite happy for Rob. Of course. To take as much... Blame the Foreign Office. He's so it's, done. It's, so wh where does British politics go? It's horrible, actually. People like me are disenfranchised. Are they Tory? Because I suppose I'll, I'll, I'll have to. Yeah. But I don't feel happy about it. I won't have a spring in my step. I don't know how long he's going to last because the backbenchers are really fed up. And there's lots of things, lots of elephant traps coming along. People have forgotten about the new planning legislation, mm. which means in the Tory heartlands there's well, going to be an awful lot of concrete. But our population has risen by yeah. seven or eight million yeah, yeah. in the last 20 years. Yeah. We have to build houses. We, we have to build houses. It's a question, question of where. The next thing I read in the, one of the newspapers today, they want to charge prescriptions or charge pensioners yeah. prescriptions. That is a matter of insanity. And finally, the triple lock on pensions. Yeah. Now, you know, that's going to go down very <laughs> badly <laughs> but indeed. They, but, but they can't raise pensions by 8%, can they? Well, yeah, but uh, if wages are going up... Uh, this was a manifesto commitment. Yeah, I know. You I know, know I know. But the big thing that's happened in British politics, and the reason Boris is even yeah. there as Prime Minister, yeah. and the reason he's got an 80 majority, and the reason that Labour are in the most desperate trouble... Yes. ..is the European question. Now, yeah. you know, as you know... It has been resolved. I'm a, I, I, I voted Remain, I campaigned for Remain, and I'll be honest with you, I felt bereaved when the answer came along. But I'm a Democrat. We had a, a referendum, and you can yes. argue whether it was, you know, there were a load of lies told on either side. It doesn't matter. In any election, uh, yeah, ever. Yeah, yeah, but there's a few, few whoppers about buses, and you weren't responsible for that. No. No, you weren't standing in front of a bus because they didn't want anything to do with you. No. 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 Well, we, we know the reason for that. Because they didn't want to talk about immigration.
because I don't think they actually wanted to win. No, they didn't want to win. They didn't want to win. Look on Gove's face. Yeah, and they were shocked. They're absolutely shocked. Yeah. What do we do now? I, I know, well, what have we done, I yeah. think? Yeah. I think. Yeah, no, they didn't really want to win. It was about positioning in the Conservative yeah. Party. And let's be honest about it. The opening of the doors in the way that we did, the dramatic changes that occurred in people's local communities, yeah. the compression of wages, the lack of access to local primary school places, GP appointments, that's why people voted to leave the European I, I, Union. I think, that, I think that's probably right. We used to call it the old Alf Garnet vote, the old Northern that's Trade really, Union. Really, I know it's really patronising. So snobby thing. It's not being snobby, but that's it what is. we used to say. But it's reality. You look down at them. It's not looking down it at people is. at all. No, it's because that is the reality. You see, Alf Garnett was a Labour supporter, wasn't he? Yeah. Well, 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 well sort of. Well, well, sort of. Actually, he said he was a Tory. Well, he came yeah, from but, a Labour but, background. Yeah, but, but, but I just, I do think, Jerry, and, and you're great fun to be with, mm -hmm. but I do think even saying that, the fact that people in Westminster call it the Alf Garnett vote shows you the problem that we've still got in British politics. I, there is a disconnect. A disconnect I, I think between... there's been a disconnect for a very, very long time. Yeah. Um, and it's a problem. You go to the House of Commons now and they're all driven people one way or the other. That's not the way it should be. The most important thing you do is look after your constituents. And what's happened to working class people in politics? Uh, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know. Because we talk about diversity the whole time. <laughs> And yet, and yet the class system is yeah. so entrenched in politics, it it's is, not actually. true. And there's a fast track. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a caste system in politics. If you've been a special advisor, if you've been a, mm. a, a, a spad to a minister, you're going to be a cabinet minister. You become a professional politician. People do not want professional politicians. And, of course, you're talking about wages. Yeah, we've got a problem. What's happened to monetarism? What's happened to Thatcherism? Too much wow. money chasing too few goods. Good heavens, inflation is going to go roaringly high. Isn't this the HGV story to a certain extent? Well, yeah, it is, because, OK, they've been treated fairly badly. Yeah. OK, there's a, a shortage but of we HGV. Need more, but the more of us want to buy the same products... Of course we do. There's a shortage of products, yeah. a shortage of drivers. £22 billion worth of savings, which are going to be splurged. Wages are going up. You're going to get a more dominant trade union movement. And now you've got someone who's running Unite. Yep. Very, looks, very yeah. dangerous person. It is, you know, get, 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 it, get in and into the Mondeo and go back to the 70s. <laughs> I was going to say, are we uh, going back to the 70s? We're going yeah. back to the 70s and the 80s. And I remember those days. Um, people forget under Harold Wilson, the successive Labour governments, inflation was well into double figures. Yeah. Uh, you had people sitting around, beer and sandwiches at, at number 10 down the street, yeah. deciding how much you were going to be, be paid. Yeah. And of course, it didn't work. Wages were let rip, then inflation let rip. Interest rates under Thatcher were about 12%. Yeah. Everyone forgets that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah inflation, yeah. We, we, I think we got it down to about 8%, but that was considered really good news. So inflation is going to go up. Inflation, but the banks won't have it. And in America, they won't have it either. The central bankers in America say, no, 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 there's not inflationary pressure. Ah, but I'm a cynic here, you see. Yeah. Because I think they're talking down inflation when they secretly want inflation because they've borrowed so much blooming money yeah. since the 08 yeah, yeah. collapse in financial markets. Yeah. I think that they inflate their way out of that debt and we all pay for it effectively. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I think that's probably... But why don't people say it in Parliament? Who says... Look, we all believe in Margaret Thatcher because a lot of them do. None of them ever met her, of course. I mean, all the cabinet 
were at school when I was a member of Parliament. And someone say, well, did you know Margaret Thatcher? I say, yeah, you know, when she was sane. Apart from your later disagreement with Thatcher, I mean, you were elected on a Thatcher ticket. Yeah, of course I was. Which was a tough economic Look, ticket of dealing with inflation. She was honest. She was principal. I may have disagreed, but she yeah. knew exactly where you were with her. She would be revolving in her grave to see what is happening now. And how was she with you as a junior about Oh, she's show? great. She was lovely. Really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I can remember going in for a dressing down. I can't remember what it was about. <laughs> what so I, had, I had a, a sort of industrialised <laughs> gin, and she sort of comes in. Uh, and if this was... Now, this is weird. You've probably forgotten this, but you couldn't get a drink after 2.30 in a pub. I remember. You couldn't, it was just insane. So you set up lots of daft, very dodgy little clubs. Yeah, where down, you go drink. down a flight of stairs. Down a flight yeah, of yeah, stairs, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, all that sort yeah. of stuff. Yeah. Well, what happened was there was a third reading about Sunday trading. That was another big thing. Sunday trading, for heaven's sake. Churches were against it. And I said, oh, yeah, um, Douglas, who was then uh, was Home Secretary, I said, has promised us a free vote on the third reading. She says, what? And this is... Oh, <laughs> so I don't know what happened to him. <laughs> but, you, know. you deflected it very Oh, yeah. When you look, look back at it all, I mean... It's fun. You it was really, fun. You really enjoyed it. It was fun. It was a different... Sucked. You were a very prominent, very prominent well, figure. I got there by accident. Yeah. And I thought, I'm going to make the most of it. Yeah. I'm... I don't like discipline. I really don't no. like being well, told no, what well, the to tabloid, do. Pre, the tabloid press enjoyed you a lot. Well, yeah. <laughs> they had a lot of fun at your expense. <laughs> well, when I first met... Uh, well, I thought I first met Piers Morgan when he was editor of News. Well, he said, no, no, no. When I was 18, you took me around the House of Commons because Harley used to have a journalism course. OK. So I've known dear old Piers. Yeah. Can I just mention one thing on wokery? Yeah, go on. You were mentioning. Please, have you seen the late, latest thing, Paw Patrol? Have you seen that? You know, it's a, it's a children's cartoon where there's lots of... Dogs. And the hero dogs are police officers. Oh, no, no, no. It's showing them in a good light. Well, why shouldn't the police be shown in a good light? Yeah. I don't get it. The other one, the tiger who came to tea. I read them to my oh, yes. grandchildren. Yes. And I remember before the author died, she died fairly recently, she was asked, well, the tiger is really about domestic violence. No, dear. It's about a tiger who came to tea. <laughs> and now the, the, the woke brigade are trying to ban it because the man... Is in a dominant position because he takes them to a cafe. Now, I'm sorry, yeah. that is insane. So, all through the history of mankind, we have these great battles. Yep. I mean, is this country a better place than it was 40 years ago? Oh, it's difficult to say. I think probably yes, because you look at the way people were treated racially. Yep. It was wrong. You look at some of the programmes, so even we're the goodies. Oh, and I, I think the God, younger than everyone's younger than me, but. The younger generation are far more tolerant, far more decent than I think we ever were. And that's a really, really, really good thing. I'm optimistic about the future. I'm yep. just not optimistic about politics. No. People, look, the way this lot are behaving, crematory. It's exactly central casting. This is how politicians behave. They've got fingers in the till. They are not too many people who are corrupt, but I mean, well, it looks well, do it well, looks well. Some of the it looks dodgy. some of the uh, dishing out of PPE yeah. contracts, etc. Does not look pretty. It does not look pretty. No, at all. it no. really. So does. politics in a mess. Politics in a terrible mess. But it's always been in a mess, really, hasn't not it? Not as bad as that. Not as bad as. And that. public trust, Pff, gone of all the major institutions. Church of England. You'd be lucky if you meet a C of E vicar. I know I'm going to get in trouble with this. Well, certainly yeah. a bishop who actually believes in God. 
No, it's not God, no, not no, it's God. No, you know, God no. is a symbol. Yeah. And I was talking about <laughs> the power of prayer the other day. <laughs> well, the prayer, prayer is just really being remembered. Yeah. I said, I don't want to be remembered. I want to be with all the people I love and like. In a perpetual lunch of the Savile Club, you know. <laughs> uh, that's what I want. You've got loads of stuff you can do, and you do media, and you do your barristering. And, but, I mean, you seem to have such a passion for some of these things. Well, yeah. Have you ever thought about going back into politics? No. Ago? No. No? No. It's Not anymore. Time. You'd have loved it in the 80s. You'd have really, really loved it. There was a club which you would have been a member of uh, <laughs> called the Wednesday Club, and they even had ties whereby everyone would be drunk by 11 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and it just, you know, that was... Now you go into the bar... I know, I shouldn't say this, but people are drinking tea and people are drinking... How coffee. awful. It is awful. No, I'd have enjoyed the Wednesday Club. You would have enjoyed Jerry the Wednesday Hayes, Club. Jerry Hayes, thank you for joining Thanks. me on Talking Pints. That was Jerry Hayes. We are coming towards the end of the programme, so it's now time for Barrage the Farage, the questions that you've sent in that I have not been able to see, and maybe you can trip me up tonight. Let's have a go. Pauline asks me, who would you recommend in this government to take on the post of Home Secretary? Well, here's a really funny one. I was actually in the constituency of, of uh, Whitham today, Pretty Patel's constituency. Um, I would have thought if there was a Home Secretary who would have been tough... Uh, it would have been pretty Patel on things like illegal immigration, things coming you know, the channel, all the rest of it. Uh, well, her rhetoric is very tough, uh, but her delivery uh, has been absolutely pathetic. And I, I don't want to blame pretty Patel. I think it's Boris, actually. I don't, think we've, I don't think we've actually got the political will to deal with this issue. So I wish pretty Patel would succeed. Frankly, my view is this. All the while we're signed up to the European Convention on Human Rights, and particularly after the Windrush scandal, it makes sending anyone back anywhere virtually impossible without long legal actions. And I think until we deal with that, whoever's Home Secretary is probably, on that issue, going to fail. And I have to mention knife crime in London as well, and actually violent crime, uh, you know, in our cities. Uh, Jerry mentioned earlier respect for the police was an important thing, and somehow we've got to get that back. Luke, on email, asks me, do you believe that pursuing a freedom of movement and foreign policy cooperation agreement would be good for the UK? We just voted to leave that. I, by the way, I do not want us to have a joint foreign policy with the European Union, uh, because the way the European Union do things is, effectively, you pull in with them. I think they've got Iran completely and utterly wrong. I want no part of it. I've got no confidence in a European Defence Union. I really don't. I, don't think, I just don't think it'll work. I don't think anybody in Europe is frankly prepared to pay enough money to build significant military forces. And yes, I'm very depressed about where we are with the USA right now. But I have concluded that it's a break in the special relationship, not the end of the special relationship. And that, I think, is what we need to fix. Last one I'm going to do. Les says, if Biden had to stand down as president, would Kamala Harris be a good replacement? Well, here's the bizarre thing. You've got a 78-year-old US president who occasionally can read an autocue without bumbling and stumbling, although often can't even manage that. But a vice president who in the ratings, even prior to Afghanistan, is even more unpopular than Joe Biden. She was absolute disaster in her own party, 
in terms of the primaries, she got absolutely nowhere. So if she does take over, she's going to have one hell of a job. Big opportunities for the Republicans.